0: All right, we're going to be going through the Book of Psalms. Now, the Book of Psalms is a songbook, a collection of songs in the Bible, but it's so much more than that. And Psalms is a collection of songs that teach us how to pray. And this whole series we're going through, through the Book of Psalms, is called Teach Us to Pray, because these songs teach us so much theology, knowledge about God that we can take into our own lives and affect how we live, how we view God, and how we pray. And they're rich in truth, they're rich in imagery, and they're rich in prophetic language. Now, if you want a good introduction to the Psalms, and you weren't here last week, then I'd encourage you to have a listen to the talk that James gave. It was the first part of our series on the Psalms, and he gave an introductions into a way we can read the Psalms, uh, the different kind of layers to things that are going on. And so you, if you weren't here last week, it's kind of like missing the first part in a box set. Like You can kind of pick up, but seeing the introduction will really help you understand the Rest of the series that's going to come. I think prayer is. You might be like, maybe it's your first time in church, and I like prayer is that massively relevant in 2019. Well, if you were here last week, you'd have heard James say a really interesting stat that The Guardian said about, and that's that one in five people who would say that they're not even religious would say that they pray. People even say I don't believe in God would still pray. Fifty percent of the UK would say that they pray. So it's a good chunk of us. And I'm sure there's many people, even if you wouldn't say that you're necessarily a Christian here tonight, there may have been a moment in your life when you've prayed. So what is prayer? What is prayer? If so many of us are doing it, are we getting it right? Are we understanding it? Well, the Psalms help us to answer that question. Why do we pray? How do we pray? So each week we're going to be looking at different Psalms. And tonight we're going to be looking at Psalm 16. And if you've got a Bible with you, I encourage you, if you're someone who has a Bible, bring it every week, because throughout these psalms series, we're going to be going through different psalms, verse by verse, and if you can just have a Bible open on your lap, it gives you a good chance to kind of reflect on what's being said, to follow the flow. Of course, as always, the words will come up on uh, on the screen, and if you don't have a Bible, have a chat to me after, and we'll hook you up with one, because it's great to have one with you, if you're able to. So we're going to pick apart this psalm, but before we do that, it'd be great to just go through the whole thing at once, because these psalms are not meant to be read just kind of one line at a time, but just like any song, you need the whole thing to really get a feel for what's going on. So I've asked for Catherine to come up and read it for us.
1: Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore.
0: You can give her a clap if you want, that was great, thanks Catherine. All right. so there's so much going on in this psalm and we're going to do our best tonight to go through some of the different things you could probably do weeks and weeks just on Psalm 16. But let's have a little bit of a look into what's happening. We're going to dive straight in at verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now these verses continue themes from previous Psalms that we have uh, kind of gone through in the past week. And if you've read the first 15 Psalms, you'll know that this continues themes of saying things like uh, God being a place of refuge. There's covenantal language here of saying, I have a relationship with God. And there's this key phrase, which it's important not to gloss over, where David declares, you are my Lord. He's saying, you are my Lord. Now, I know a lot of people who say that they believe that there's a God. I was chatting to some people recently who said, yeah, 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 I, I believe that there's a God. But this is so different from that. David is saying, my Lord, you are my Lord. He's saying, I have a relationship with God. I don't just know about God, I know God. And my question for you tonight would be, just raised from this first verse is, do you know God? Do you know him? Maybe you say, oh, I believe there's a God. Well, this is saying to you that tonight you can know God for yourself. Not just about him, not just a theory, you can know him. It's also saying that there's, in the verse it says, um, I have no good apart from you. David is saying there's so many good things in life, but all of it, all the good is from God and found in him. Verse 3, verse 3 it says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Now, if you're a parent or an uncle or auntie, you'll know that you take delight in seeing the kids doing well. Seeing them just succeed and having a great time and just going from strength to strength. That gives you joy. And what David is saying is, when you're part of the family of God, it's the same thing. In fact, in many ways, there's something more deeper, something deeper and more special than that. See, there's a delight that happens to other members of the family not because you're related to them or because you have this long history of them in fact some of them you may not have even known that well at all but because you're in the family of God you have a central common identity that goes beyond your surname or beyond your skin color or beyond your background or your class and so when you see people are part of the same family of God it stirs joy amongst you And yes, I'll be completely honest. People within the family of God, from church, people who are followers of God, have caused probably the most pain in my life. Some of those painful moments, if you know anything about my own story, have been caused by people who call themselves Christians. But it's impossible to stay mad at the family of God. Because when you know all that God has done for you, and how he has joined you together in unity... You can't stay mad for long, and you just get excited for what people are doing, for all the breakthroughs in their lives, and as much as you want to cling on to your frustrations, you just get captured again with this beautiful thing that we call the church. And some of my favorite memories over the past year have been moments like when uh, people who've been walking in shame have found freedom. Seeing that time and time again in our six o'clock church family, it's so cool to see People who are like, I'm so, so busy, and on paper, I don't have time for community and friendship and that sort of stuff in church, but I see the value of it, and so I'm going to join a community, and I'm going to commit to it and go every week. It's so cool to see. People have said, money is an issue in my life, and it has a hold on me, and I find it so hard to give away. And so to break free of that, I'm going to set up a standing order, and I'm going to give because I want to walk in freedom of that. Seeing that happen time and time again is so cool. People overcoming social anxiety to come to church on a Sunday when everything inside them would say, to be around a load of people, to have someone shake my hand and smile at me and make small talk at the door makes the thought of it makes my skin crawl. But I'm still gonna turn up every week, despite any, everything in me saying, don't go, don't go, don't go. I'm gonna turn up, I'm gonna make the small talk, I'm gonna be there because I wanna walk free of this anxiety. People in this room who have walked free of that, amazing to see. So many things to celebrate. People like Lydia, who at Beer and Cows had almost all of her course mates from Rose Bruford come along, amazing. People like Billy and Becky and Lucy and others who stepped up to lead communities and said, I want to help other people come into relationship with each other and with God. People like Amelia who brought a word last week during worship. Someone from Bird College who's like, look, I know almost everyone in my college doesn't know Jesus and I'm passionate about sharing his good news with them. People like Tim Towa, who uh, has got this real desire to see people grow in friendship. And so he's organizing events. And granted, he often doesn't turn up at the actual events he's organized, <laughs> as happened last night. But his heart is good. And he's trying. And I respect that as much as it can be annoying. <laughs> people, <laughs> oh, wow, well. people like Hus. Hers- we had a lot of laughs about that anyway. You might have seen some photos online and you'll understand that one. But Huss and Nicola, the guys who've been doing Alpha with Tony, just seeing how amazing it is seeing these guys walking free and knowing more about Jesus. And even tonight talking to them how excited they are, getting baptized in the coming weeks. And we are going to celebrate all that God has done in their lives. It's going to be amazing. People like Barney and others serving on the youth team who are like, you know what, sometimes these youth do my head in, but I'm going to keep serving, I'm going to keep trying as hard as it can be. People like Eunice who are full of encouragement. If you know her, just seeing her encouragement fills you with delight. People like June and her generosity and her kindness to others. It fills you with delight. And some of these people I barely know. Some of these people you might not even heard of their names. But it's so cool that you can say, I delight in these people because we're part of the family of God. And it's why being in a community, one of our community groups is so cool. It's why having people for dinner and and why praying for people and serving others is so, so much fun because it's not this chore. It's not this hard thing. It's something that you delight in because you've got a new family, a new community, Because of Jesus. So we keep going. The next section and the main bulk of Psalm 16 is David contrasting two ways of living. And he declares that one of these two is far greater. So he starts in verse 4 by holding up one way. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. David is saying there are those who run after other gods other than the one true God. And the Bible regularly describes these gods as idols. Now, when you hear idols, you can naturally think, well, that applies to people in different cultures and in different times, but I'm not sure that's necessarily relevant to 2019 Sid Cup. Maybe. Maybe. I had a story of an Indian pastor who came to visit London. And a London pastor was showing him around, um, around the city and doing all the classic you know, sightseeing along the Thames and showing him all the, the sights and sounds and giving him a bit of exposure to London culture. And at the end of the day, quite kind of pleased with himself on this tour that he'd given, he said to the, the Indian pastor, so what did, you, what did you think of London? And the Indian pastor was quite sombre. And he said, I actually found it really difficult. And the, the, the British pastor was a little bit confused and a bit shocked. And he said, why was that? And the Indian guy said, because there's just so many idols everywhere. And I remember when I first heard that story, it's always stuck in my mind ever since. Because here's a guy from India. And if you know anything about India, if you've been to a country similar, you know that there are idols everywhere. Idols on street corners, idols in your kitchen, idols at school. Everywhere you go, there are idols. And yet, this man comes to London and says, I don't find it comfortable here because just how many idols there are. I think it's quite interesting. An idol is something you worship. And London is alive with worship. Wealth, comfort. Sex, romance, appearance, success, fame, property. oh that's a big one. Possessions. David is saying that if you run after idols, what will happen? Your sorrows will multiply. Why is that? Well, he says they demand drink offerings of blood. Of sacrifice. Now, in that context, it literally meant taking your blood and pouring it out. Yet it might not be, again, too distant from our own culture because our idols drain our lifeblood. And as he says, this leads to a sorrow that multiplies. So, what does that practically look like? With you, that if your idol is, I need to look a certain way, I need to achieve that appearance. And you work harder. Maybe you hit the gym really hard. And then if that's not necessarily working, you go for the plastic surgery and the, the Botox. But as you solve one problem, you become aware of this other body part that isn't really matching up to your ideal. And then aging happens. And then body trends change. And all of a sudden, what you are aiming for is getting harder and harder as the aging process begins and, and, and your sorrows multiply. That's why some of the most attractive people on the planet are some of the most insecure about their appearance. Or if your idol is, well, I need to have more and more money. This is a huge one in our city. The problem is you, you get a bit more, and then all of a sudden you're just like, yeah, but I don't have this thing yet. Like, I don't know if you've had this moment where you're like, when I just have that, like when I was a student, I was like, when I just have this amount of income, then I know it'll be enough, and then I'll be content. And then you get that money, and you're like, well, I I need that thing. I don't have that thing. And that person has that thing. And so you work harder, and you sacrifice more, and actually you're never content, and your sorrows multiply. Or the bigger house. You think, ah, this is great, but my neighbor, I mean, they got the the conservatory. So I'm going to work, work, work. I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to get that extension. I'm going to give everything to that. And then you get it. And then your bills go up because conservatories cost so much. I'm broke now and I've got to work even harder to pay for it. And, and actually now the neighbors the other side have got this really nice kind of bifolding doors and I'll be so we need that. And it's like, well work, 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 and you're never content and your sorrows multiply. If your idols, if your idol is your friends. You say that's such a massive thing for me. Like my friends and my world, like what they say about me and how we hang out. That's where I find my value. And then friendships can change. People move away. Change the stage of life. And all of a sudden, you find your sorrows multiplying. If you say things like, my family is my entire world. Giving everything to that, My family is my world. How many times have I heard that phrase? Well, then your kids leave home. And all of a sudden there's this breakdown in your life and there's this empty nesting and there's challenges in a marriage and your sorrows multiply and you yearn for those days that will never come back. If you're desperate to have this long life and you're you're on the, the healthiest thing and you don't eat that and you're reading every article that says if you eat this, do that, smell this, go there, you'll get cancer and you avoid all of those things, you can still get a terminal illness. See, none of these goals are necessarily bad in themselves. But the problem comes when they become your God. Because idols take, and we have to sacrifice for them. And then they demand more to be satisfied. And so we sacrifice more. And our sorrows are multiplied, and the cycle continues and continues, and our sorrows multiply and multiply some more. Thankfully, David doesn't stop there. He contrasts this with a far greater way. He says, rather than pouring out these kind of blood offerings for idols, he says, the Lord is my cup. And it reminds us of another line in a famous psalm, Psalm 23. When David prays, my cup Overflows my cup overflows. He's saying, rather than having to pour out for all these idols, I know a living God who is sustaining me and pouring into me. I'm not empty, I'm full. Rather than multiplied sorrows, I have multiplied joy. He says in verse 16: the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. He's saying, I've received so much. And I have so much more to receive. David then continues with the big theme, the big question in the psalm, which is this. What is the source of security and joy? What is the source of security and joy? Now, to answer that, he gives loads and loads of imagery. As you read through the psalm, there's all these pictures and images as David tries to paint for us an image of what it is to know the joy and security of God. But there's one image that's repeated twice. I don't know if you picked up on that in the reading. One image that's repeated twice. He says it twice. Right hand. Right hand. In verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. And then in verse 11, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, the phrase right hand isn't really something we use in our culture massively. If you read the Bible, you know it's used tons and tons and tons all throughout the Bible. And we kind of use it a bit in our, in our culture. You might, you might have heard the phrase, he's my right-hand man. Have you heard that? That's like a commonly used phrase, my right-hand man. And in a lot of ways, the, the phrase in the Bible isn't too different from that, the understanding, the concept of the right hand. So in biblical times, uh, your right hand, the person who stood at your right hand as king, was your most trusted ally. When you went into battle, they would have the person who they wanted to defend them at their right side. Also, in your right hand, you held a sword. Your sword was in your right hand, and so that was a symbol of strength, of power. So the right hand was a symbol of those things, of strength and of power, what you held in your right hand. Now, most of us might not carry swords today, but I think the whole notion of our right hand is still relevant to our culture. What's in your right hand? I mean practically, what's in your right hand? Look on any train station, any bus, go to any coffee shop, lounge, or bedroom. What are people always holding in their right hand? Our phones. Our phones. In that... Moment when you wake up and you just want to quickly just check all those things you do in the morning. You've got your little routine. You've got your habit. Oh, okay, yeah. Okay, I'm, I feel settled for the day. I've got that out of the way. Oh, actually, I feel especially good because i got about 17 lights on that picture and I was looking good in that. And yeah, a few comments. Yeah, yeah, cool, cool. When you're waiting and, and that person's two minutes late and you're like, what is going on? And you just think, ah, oh, I, I just want to fill this time. I get straight into my right hand. I've got my phone. In that moment when you're, you're thinking about that difficult situation and you just want to numb to it, ah, whew, let's get that. Let's just watch another epi- episode of this tidying show on Netflix. Ah, that's better. Okay, I can just forget. Ah, my life is so boring and mundane, but on my phone I can escape to the worlds of these celebrities with millions of followers who are beautiful and have this incredible life and I can just kind of escape for a second. Ah. Our phones in our right hands. And it's interesting, the stats are showing just how much this notion of our phones giving us comfort and security is so, so wrong. David is saying that having God in your right hand leaves you unshaken, but we are finding more and more that the more we use our phones, the more we come away shaken. The stats, the graphs are showing that increased amount of time you spend on your phone in social media, what happens? Increased anxiety. Increased anxiety. And I get this. It's a problem in my own life. I uh, got a little notification on my phone this morning. Apple now very kindly every week gives me an update on how I'm doing with my phone usage. And uh, it said that uh, I'm down 8% from last week on my daily phone usage. So I was pretty pleased with that. It's going okay. It's going in the right direction. So my daily usage was down to four hours and 53 minutes. I was pretty shocked at And granted, a lot of that's WhatsApp. And I was like, that can't be right. So I researched it, and apparently it was. Four hours and 53 minutes. See, I'm turning to my phone thinking, this in my right hand, this in my moments when I don't want to think about stuff will give me peace, will give me release. And yet actually it does the opposite, because when you put the phone down, you enter back into reality, you're worse off than you were before. What else? For some, you might be like... Phones, nah, not a problem, although the stats would say most of us, it's a massive problem. Maybe for you, it's another thing in your right hand your wallet. Your wallet. We live in one of the wealthiest parts on the entire planet throughout entire human history. And that gives us a, a security of being, I've got enough money that, you know, even if this whole Brexit thing goes a bit weird or, you know, my life's trying to ch- kind of changes, like, I'm pretty set. I've got enough money to keep me going. Yet we find increasingly the number one cause, I think, now statistically, of things like divorce is money. We're racked with anxiety about money. And this thing that is supposed to give us all this freedom actually causes so much more. It's one of the reasons why billionaires have one of the highest suicide rates, because this idea of more money means less problems. No, no, it genuinely is more money, more problems. And again, we're turning to this thing in our right hand for peace. And it's doing the opposite. Yet most of us are desperately wanting more of it. What's another thing we have in our right hand? Maybe sometimes with interlocked fingers. A partner, girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife. I heard someone use a phrase this week. I've heard many times, I feel invincible with my wife. Phrases like, they complete me. And we have this idea of, you know, I've got, I've got them now. I've got my, my husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend. I, I, I'm, I'm all good. I'm all good. I know they love me. I know they care for me. Everything else can be falling around, falling down around me, but they're with me. They're with me. They're with me. They're with me. I, I'm safe. I'm settled. I'm all good. And we have this really high expectation of them and this, this really high standard. And then what happens? strain starts to come in the relationship. And this person is supposed to be your world. All of a sudden, there's this nervousness. You can feel it in the room now. There's an anxiety about it because this thing that was supposed to be the unshakable thing in our life isn't God, isn't perfect, isn't permanent. And so it leaves us anxious. And as with idols, if that is your rock you're on sinking sand because they're not stable and so they won't make you unshakable because they're temporary and transient. They change. I saw a tweet from John Mark Comer last week that really captured this well. He said, We see upwards of 4,000 advertisements a day. 4,000 adverts a day. All of them are designed to stoke the fire of desire in our belly and monetize our restlessness. Human desire is infinite. Humans are not. Therefore, we can never, ever satisfy desire unless we aim it at the one infinite source. I love that. Therefore, we can never, ever satisfy desire unless we aim it at the one infinite source. One of the church fathers, theologian Augustine, said a similar thing. He said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. The one who finds their security in the eternal God will never be shaken. They'll never be found wanting And the one who seeks refuge in God can know the fullness of joy. Not just for a a temporary high, but forevermore. Because what God offers isn't temporary or transient, it can't be snatched away. It's something you can build your life on. Now, don't get me wrong. There will be wobbles and valleys and tears and doubts and sorrows. But in the end, you know that your heart can be glad and your whole being can rejoice. As the psalmist says, your body can be secure because God will not abandon you. Even if everything else falls away, you can know in your heart of hearts, your body can know for certain that God will never leave you and never forsake you. And that is something you can build your life on tonight. And not just till you die, but you have a beautiful inheritance. Pleasures waiting for you forevermore. See, your 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, whatever years on this planet might not look like a beautiful thing or pleasures forevermore. But in light of eternity, it's almost like it's but a breath. You have pleasures, delights forevermore, those who are in Christ. However hard life might be now, it'll be but a breath compared to what is waiting. It's important to dwell on those things, to keep your eyes on the Lord, because what you believe about your eternity will affect how you live your life now. And so that's why it's important that we set him before us, to keep our eyes on him and to have Jesus at our right hand, because what you focus on now really does shape how you will live and how you will pray. Now, these are amazing things to declare Now, some of you are like, yes, I love this psalm. This is amazing. It's so cool to declare these things in Psalm 16. But we run into a bit of a problem. Now, in other psalms, if you've been flicking through, you'll see some some verses in there. You're like, ah, reading through there is a bit of a challenge. It says stuff like, ah, would you dash my enemies' heads against the rocks and, um, Things like, oh, you know, everyday people are trying to kill me and my life is just full of all these enemies who are attacking me. And you're like, uh, I don't really know how to read that one. I'm going to kind of skip those verses or skip that one. But I'm glad this week we have Psalm 16 because this is all good. Like I can say this with full confidence. I'm not so sure that we can. Can we really pray this Psalm with integrity? Or if we did, would we come across as hypocrites? It says things like, I have set the Lord always before me. Have you? Have you? I haven't. I definitely haven't. I'm not just saying before I became a Christian and ever since. No, no. Even as a Christian, I have definitely not set the Lord always before me. Or maybe David did. Maybe David could pray this with integrity. Was he a good person? Read about his life. He committed adultery. He had someone killed. He did tons of stupid things, some evil things, in fact. So, how could he pray with integrity? Things like, well, you'll never let your Holy One see corruption. Did he? Well, yeah, he did. What about you will not abandon my body, uh, abandon me to Sheol or to death? Well, yeah, David died. So, how can he pray that? Can David pray that with integrity? Can we pray it with integrity? No. So who can? One person. Jesus. Jesus was the perfect man. The Psalm 16 man who can pray these words with full integrity. And this is confirmed in the New Testament, twice actually in the book of Acts. Once by Peter and once by Paul. In chapter 2 and chapter 13 of Acts. And the book of Acts confirms that we can pray these things because Jesus did and he fulfilled their words. Because Jesus remained focused on God that he kept him always before him, he never saw corruption. Nor was Jesus abandoned to death. When he died, he rose again. And so we can have that confidence to pray, you will not abandon me to death. Not because we won't die because we're some good person, but because Jesus focused on God, died and rose again. And so with full integrity, can say, I was not abandoned to death. And because Jesus did these things, he is now at the right hand of the Father. At the right hand. It's a phrase we hear time and time again in the New Testament. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. For example, in Romans 8:31 it says this: If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Jesus isn't dead, he's risen. And he's not just risen in some kind of like retirement in heaven sort of mode. No, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you, a mediator on your behalf, knowing that you don't have to fear that one day God is going to change his mind about you. Jesus is sat once and for all at the right hand of God, a sign that you have nothing to fear and nothing can separate you from the love of God. That's how you can have confidence. That's how you can say the words of Psalm 16. Not because you're like, yep, I'm a great Christian who's always set God before me. No, because Jesus fixed his eyes on the cross. He lived the perfect life you couldn't live. He died the death you deserved and then was raised and now is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so you can celebrate that as you pray Psalm 16 with complete confidence. So what are our next steps? Well, all of this calls for two responses. First of all, to thank Jesus. When you think of all he's done for us, you just want to thank him, to worship him, to say, I didn't deserve to be able to pray with confidence that I'm not going to die, I'm going to have pleasures forevermore, but you have won this for me. So we thank him. Secondly, and we, we, we have to be careful with that we don't just end with that thankfulness, but it leads our hearts to want to change. To say, when I look at all that God has done for me, I can't just say the same. I want to have desires like Psalm 16. I want the Holy Spirit to come and help me, to give me that single-hearted love for God. I know I'll never be perfect, but I'm going to run towards him. So that's what we're going to do now. We're going to pray to finish. It would seem a little bit weird to end a whole sermon tonight on prayer and not give you a chance to actually pray and put it into practice. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to thank Jesus and look to him to transform our hearts. We're going to meditate on his presence. And remember this as we pray. As the psalm concludes, it says this. In your presence is fullness of joy. Being in the presence of Jesus brings the fullness, the completion, the entirety of what it means to have joy. Now on earth right now, we can get a taste of that. We can get a little bit of a kind of foreshadowing of that. But a day will come when you'll see him face to face. When you'll be in his presence. When you'll experience the fullness, the fullness of joy. And in that moment, we'll see his right hand. We'll see Jesus' right hand. And what will we see in his right hand? Hole, a hole. A hole that represents death and resurrection and freedom. Why is being in the presence of Jesus being in the presence of joy? Because he is the one who loves you so much that he didn't even hold back his own life for you. Not because you were a good person running towards him, but because you were a sinner running away, whom he said, You don't deserve it, but in my love, I'm going to save you and rescue you. I'm going to take the punishment that you deserved. The holes that deserve to be in your right hand, I'll take in mine for you. So we're going to delight in that. We can delight in that. We don't need to feel like we have to earn it back to God tonight. He's not saying to you, I want you to prove to me that you earned my love. No, he's saying, I want you to delight in my love. And if you don't know Jesus, if you can't say, I've walked with him, that I delight in him, then you can give your heart to him tonight. As we pray in a second, you can respond to that invitation from Jesus to know his love.